Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 322. My name is Camden Busey, and I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. I'm pleased to be back with you today. We have another group of great guys and theologians ready to talk about a very important topic and a very exciting book. Let me introduce to you our regulars. First, we have Jared Oliphant, who is the regional coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary. Welcome back, Jared. It's good to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be on. You are working out of Charlotte, but I hear you do have some snow today. Is that correct? It's actually <laughs> snowing down here. Yeah, it's a, it's a repeat of that thing that shut down uh, Atlanta, yeah. and um, so hopefully Charlotte's a little bit more prepared than last time. We'll have to see. We hope so. While we're at it, uh, we do have guys holed up in their homes, so it's a good time to talk about theology and uh, apologetics. And uh, we have with us also Carlton Wynn. Carlton is a Ph.D. candidate at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Welcome back, Carl. Carlton's good to have you. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks for the invite. Carlton's also an ordained PCA minister, uh, but he's uh, presently working on his dissertation and uh, hopes to finish that dissertation sometime this year and graduate early next year. He's also teaching a couple courses. Do you mind uh, mentioning very briefly uh, the two classes you you're, uh, have on schedule or just taught and are planning to teach? Sure. Um, about two weeks ago, I had the privilege of going down to the Charlotte campus of Reformed Theological Seminary, spending a week there uh, teaching a, a course called Classics of Personal Devotion. And so uh, in that course, we laid a foundation for Christian piety and sanctification and walked through various texts from church history looking at the practice of Christian devotion. I am also planning on heading to a newly established Houston RTS campus at the end of this month for three intensive weekends throughout the spring to teach uh, apologetics. Mm -hmm. So excited about that opportunity. Great. Well, it's wonderful to see you involved in uh, being able to teach at RTS at a couple different campuses. And on that very note, we have one of RTS's professors. We are very pleased uh, to welcome uh, to the program today, returning to the program, Dr. James Anderson, who is the Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Welcome back, Dr. Anderson. It's great to speak with you today. Thanks, Camden. Great to be here. Dr. Anderson has uh, just written and uh, published a book through Crossway. Uh, we're very pleased to have him on the program to talk about What's Your Worldview? An Interactive Approach to Life's Big Questions. Uh, we're going to open up that book, and it's, it's a very interesting book, almost sui generis, I might say, at least in the, in the genre. We're looking at a very exciting book and one I think that's going to prove useful for many people. But before uh, we get into that title, let me mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We encourage you to visit us online at reformedforum.org slash donate today, because we do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us produce and distribute all of our programs and theological resources free of charge. Uh, but we do need your help, so please visit us online today, and you can partner with us uh, using PayPal and some other means. Uh, for just $5 a month can go a long way and helps us cover our costs and uh, helps us to continue to schedule great interviews and discussions with uh, Reformed theologians and talking about important things that will help you grow in your faith and in your understanding of Scripture. So we want to support the Church, and uh, we feel that we have the gifts and the ability to do that in a special way, but we need your help. Once again, reformedforum.org slash donate. We thank you so much for your support of everything we do at Reformed Forum, and especially this particular program, Christ the Center. 
Now, gentlemen, I'm very pleased that we have this book in front of us. What's your worldview, an interactive approach to life's big questions? And uh, I was delighted to see this, uh, have a copy, and I was uh, flipping through it. And uh, we have on our hands something that's very unique. Uh, this, the structure of this book is extremely helpful, but it's also interactive in that it is laid out in a special way in the sense that we find it very similar to the old choose-your-adventure books, where when you come to a critical juncture, you're asked a question, and you can decide on your own which way you'll want to go, and then uh, based on your decision, you can turn to a particular page. It'll say, if you answered yes, go to page 95. If you answered no, go to page 112, that type of thing. And you weave and work your way through this book in order to find out What's your worldview? Now, Dr. Anderson, can you tell us about just your desire to write a book like this, and how does this format help to serve your ends and your, your goals for this title? Right. Yeah, well, I, the idea for the book came up while I was uh, developing an applied apologetics class, which goes through a number of worldviews, uh, naturalism, postmodernism, uh, pantheism, and does a does a, a presuppositional critique of each one, and that got me thinking about how you could divide up the field of worldviews and divide it up in such a way where where you're you're focusing on particular questions, key presuppositional questions about the nature of truth, the nature of goodness. Uh, the existence and nature of God, and I came up with this idea of of this interactive book where where you could actually lead someone down a certain path by asking key questions and get them to to um, figure out what their what their worldview is and get some insight into the process of discerning your own worldview and thinking more critically about it and I wanted to come up with a resource that wasn 't just going to be for Christians to understand other worldviews better, but actually something that I personally would be eager to put into the hand of an unbeliever and say, you know, read that and let's let's talk about it. Was it difficult to write this book, seeing that it's not linear per se? I would imagine that it would be tough not only just to get everything onto the page, but also to organize it and then to work with the publisher to uh, produce something that is that is of this very nature. Yes, it was it was challenging compared to writing another kind of book, a regular kind of book. What I had to do was actually come up with a map first of all, like a like a flow chart, thinking about well, what what worldviews do I want to cover here, and how are they going to be connected to the questions? What questions am I going to 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 have to come up with to to connect with these worldviews? So I came up with a, a flow chart first of all, that was the basic skeleton of the book, and then I wanted the book to be concise, compact, so that, again, you could give it to someone, and they're not going to be intimidated by it. They think, yeah, this is, this is not a big book. I could, I could look at this. And um, uh, then I, having you know, set those criteria, I thought I'll have the questions on one page, not more than one page for the questions, and not more than two pages for each worldview. That'll keep it fairly compact. But then the challenge, of course, is trying to say everything that you want to say in either space of one page or the space of two pages. Um, but I, I was very pleased with the way it turned out. Um, I was glad that Crossway picked it up because I knew they'd do a great job. They'd understand the concept. Um, they'd produce it very professionally, and, and that's exactly what happened, I'm pleased to say. 
Dr. Anderson, can you, before we get started with some of the particulars of the book, can you uh, tell the listeners what you mean by worldview? I know it has a lot of different definitions and we're going to unpack it, but just um, to set it in context a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, worldviews, there's a lot of talk about uh, worldviews in recent years, particularly in Christian circles. Uh, worldview is basically your, your overall view of the world, uh, not, not a physical view, of course, but a, a philosophical view of all of reality, uh, everything that exists and locating your own place in it, in, in reality. So it's an all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists, everything that matters to you. And a worldview represents your, your most fundamental uh, presuppositions, assumptions about reality, about truth, about knowledge, about God, about human nature, that it serves as, as, as it were, an interpretive framework for understanding, uh, interpreting your experiences, and determining how you're going to respond uh, to those experiences. Dr. Anderson, you include an appendix, I noticed, and I mentioned it here at the outset of our interview just because you explain a lot of the purpose of the book in the appendix in a kind of question-and-answer format. Could you speak just for a minute as to uh, the scope of the worldviews that you include? You, you ask a question, for example, aren't there other worldviews beyond those represented in the book that one could have? And you say yes and no. Could you explain <laughs> what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reason I say yes and no is that uh, you, can, you can, as it were, slice the cake in different ways. So you can, you can divide up the field of possibilities because you, ha you, you have to generalize a bit. You, you can't deal with every possible sure. distinct worldview that there is because there would be an infinite number. So to some extent, you have to simplify and categorize. So I had to make a judgment about which are the major worldviews that I want to include in this. And so something like pantheism... Uh, pantheism, a lot of Eastern religions are, are pantheistic, and within pantheism there are, there are variations. However, I felt it wasn't going to be worthwhile going into different pantheistic worldviews when you can just deal with the deal with the basic pantheist worldview. But at the same time, because of the the questions are, are yes and no questions, they're, they're binary choices, so you you can either answer yes or no. There aren't any other options. Theoretically, and this is the way I've tried to design it, all the bases should be covered. So depending on the way you answer the questions in the book, what you end up with, the worldview that you end up with, should re basically represent your, your outlook fairly, fairly accurately based on the questions that you've answered. Mm -hmm. you, uh, you begin with epistemology, and uh, that's certainly an important point. So why is this topic uh, toward the beginning of the book, and what role does that have in forming and shaping a worldview? Right. The, well, the first question, well, actually the first question is, is, uh, is um, a, a little bit of a, um, a joke uh, that I'm not going right. to explain because it will spoil the surprise. But uh, the, the, one of the first questions is the, the truth question, asking is there any objective truth? And I feel that's one of the questions you have to answer up front because if someone doesn't believe that there's objective truth, then you've got to deal with that at the outset. If they're a relativist, then it's really there's really no point talking about other things like like God, historical um, facts about Jesus, so forth, uh, until you've nailed down the fact that there there are objective truths about these things. Otherwise, you just slip into the quicksand of relativism. So that's why I put that question and also the knowledge question: um, Can you actually know the truth? These need to be up front because you have to establish 
that there is truth and it can be known before you can go on and answer some of the other key questions. I would imagine that readers, um, maybe young people, college-age students, maybe they would, but you, you essentially are beginning this book working your way through the major branches of philosophy before drilling down into particular worldviews. Is that a fair assessment in terms of these opening questions? Yeah, that's right. You know, the first, the first questions are really epistemological ones, and then quickly you move into uh, more ethical or more broadly uh, value-based questions about goodness, uh, and then you start getting into the, the metaphysical questions about, um, about God, about uh, the nature of reality, materialism versus idealism, the nature of God, and so on. And the reason I ask the, the epistemological and ethical questions is, and because you guys are presuppositionalists, you know, you'll appreciate this, that you, you set up the reader so that they've made certain epistemological and ethical claims, or that they've taken a position, and then you're arguing that, that those positions require certain metaphysics. So, for example, if they get to the God question and they answer no, then I will say, but you, you answered the goodness question, yes, you said that there is such a thing as objective goodness, but now you've rejected a worldview that can actually make sense of the fact that there's objective goodness. So there is a, there is a deliberate logic to the way the questions are asked, getting people to, to recognize that there must be such things as objective truth, knowledge, and, and goodness, but then they need to think about whether their metaphysics can actually account for, yeah. for how they've answered those questions. Right, right. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Uh, it might seem counterintuitive, but there are different kinds of uh, atheist uh, subcategories. There are different atheist worldviews. Um, not just, it, it's not just lumped into one, which I appreciated so that um, people can you know, slide through the different options of, of nuances based on what they believe. What are, what are some different options under that large umbrella atheism that you address? Yeah, I, I didn't want people to dismiss the book because it just said there, there's the atheist worldview because right. I commonly hear it. Well, there's, there's not an atheist worldview because uh, atheists have lots of different, different views. You've got materialists, you've got non-materialists. And I accept that point, although I do make the point that there are atheist worldviews. That is, every atheist has a worldview. But I thought the best way to divide the field was between uh, was really focusing on the the mind matter question because uh, certainly in our society in our culture um, most hardcore atheists are materialists and once you establish that then you've got a lot to go on because materialism materialism has a whole host of philosophical problems but I didn't want to assume that all atheists are going to be materialists so I wanted to allow the option for uh, an idealist someone who says that uh, actually there is no material world, everything is minds and ideas. And then the other option would be a dualism, where you accept both mind and matter, but there's no God behind it all. You're an atheistic dualist. And each of those, I think, you know, an atheist is going to fall into one of those three categories, depending on how they understand the relationship between mind and matter. But each one has its own distinct set of, of problems, objections, challenges, which I, I try to highlight. Mm. I noticed very early on as I was taking on the persona of various people as I was answering the questions that you do also push back a little bit in places. You know, one person might initially look at this book without knowing the contents and just think it might be some sort of a la carte philosophy book where 
you just go in, find out what you are, and then that'll find the right support group for you where you can go and just find the people that are like-minded and, and reinforce whatever view you may have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you do push back in places and push people to a little bit greater consistency. I, I noticed very early on with one of the atheist positions, you also encourage people to reconsider their answers and provide a loop back uh, to go back and, and answer some of the questions again with maybe a, you know, a different frame of mind. Yeah, that's exactly right. Again, the idea was if it's going to be like a choose-your-own-adventure book, if it's going to have that format, you've got to give people the option to change their mind, to go back. You, you remember the, the, these, these books, you would have a particular situation, how are you going to deal with this goblin, and uh, you choose one path, and it turns out badly. Okay, So yeah. what do you do? You just go back, and you, you make the other choice, and you follow the other path, and that's part of the fun of it. And that's exactly what I wanted to allow the reader to be able to do, to lead them down a path, and suppose they, they, they end up with a materialist worldview, and then you say, well, have you, have you thought about this? If you're a materialist, then you're really undermining reason because you're denying the reality of mind and thought and, and reason um, and, and encourage people to, to rethink, to back up and say, well, if, if you've taken a different path, where would that get you? And Which path is actually going to lead you to the worldview that avoids these sort of fundamental problems? Mm-hmm. Another thing you do is is clearly move from more vague generalities and big, big questions, you know, about truth and, and the nature of reality, very fundamental metaphysical and epistemological questions. And then slowly, as people start answering those questions, you move into greater specificity. Uh, one step is this step on theism. Now, how would you distinguish, you know, a general theistic worldview from a more proper and uh, biblical, fully developed Christian worldview? And what role does that place in this particular book, as opposed to, say, how we might have an apologetic encounter or a debate with someone outside of this type of context? You know, I'm not in the business of defending a generic theism. You know, the, oh, certainly the, only, not. You're right. the only theism that, that matters is, is biblical theism. We've got to be specific about that. Having said that, given the structure of the book, uh, if you're going to lead someone to appreciate a biblical theism, you uh, you, you can't present it all in one go, just pedagogically. You know, you, you have to talk about some things first. You have to talk with generalities and then get down to specifics. And so with the structure of the book, you, you have the, the God question, fundamental question about whether there, whether there is any supreme transcendent being behind the universe. But then you follow that up with specific questions about what, what kind of God is this? Is this a personal God? Is this an absolute perfect God without any limitations. And then, if you follow the path down, basically it does lead you um, to make a choice between a a Unitarian versus a Trinitarian Mm. theism. You've got the, the divinity question about whether whether Jesus of Nazareth is, is divine, which certainly historically, you know, thinking in terms of the way that the Christian creeds are formulated, that's the, that's the linchpin of Trinitarian theology, is Jesus of Nazareth also the divine Son of God? As I was reading it, um, I intentionally did not choose Christian answers to the questions just so I could work through uh, the flow chart that you mentioned. I wanted to see where all the rabbit trails took me. So I was trying to actually find the dead ends as I was reading it, contrary to the way most people would read a, a choose-your-own-adventure book. But it got me feeling as if you were you were indeed tightening the screws a little bit 
uh, on the reader as you're recalling previous answers, as you're exposing inadequacies and chosen worldviews. How much of this book, I imagine most of it would be diagnostic, but how much of it in your mind was evangelistically oriented? Right. Yeah, it's not meant to be simply a diagnostic book. You're absolutely right. Although it is that, it's to help people to to uh, be more precise, be more aware of their worldview. There's definitely uh, an apologetic thrust to it. it. It really is an indirect argument for Christianity um, because as you follow the other paths, I hope people will see that they have problems that if they back up and follow the other the, the path towards the Christian worldview, that the Christian worldview avoids these problems. Now, I don't want to make it so blatant that uh, I don't say anything that, you know, the Christ- Christians don't face any intellectual difficulties at all. So I talk a little <laughs> bit about sure. the problem of evil, uh, about the, the challenges of someone, simply someone like Jesus described in the New Testament presents to, to any human being today. Um, but the I'm not going to deny for a moment that there, there's a, an apologetic, evangelistic thrust to this book that I hope that people will read all the way through, follow all the paths eventually, and be able to see that the Christian worldview is superior to other yeah. worldviews. And I'm kind of upfront about that in the book. I don't say right in the introduction, hey, I'm a Christian and I'm going to try and convert you before you get to the end of this book. Mm-hmm. But rather, I do say I, I, I do have a bias because we all have a, a bias. Uh, we just got to be upfront about our biases. Um, but I do try to be fair-handed in the way that I deal with other worldviews. Um, but of course, I have a worldview uh, and I hold that worldview because I think it's the most reasonable one and that's, that's going to be reflected in, in the book itself. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. In, in one sense, you could say that this book is kind of a demonstration of the impossibility of the contrary, uh, anything contrary to Christianity. It, it, did you see it in that way? Is that an overstatement? It, uh, no, that's, that's accurate. It, 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 is, it is, in effect, doing a presuppositional critique of other worldviews, and it's, it's, it's an indirect, transcendental argument, particularly with some of the early worldviews that, that deny truth, knowledge, goodness. I mean, they are obviously... Um, presuppositionally dead in the water, but the other ones as well, uh, ideas of God where, where, where that violate the creator creature distinction ultimately end up um, obliterating the distinction between good and evil as well so all that 's in there when you start getting down to um, uh, getting closer to a Christian worldview, then you have to start bringing in uh, more um, biblical considerations in terms of to what extent are you committed to what the Bible says uh, about God, about Jesus, and some uh, historical um, questions as well about the, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, for example. But I'm not doing that in a presuppositional vacuum. You know, I'm building the presuppositional framework within which then we can start talking fruitfully about historical evidences for something like the resurrection. Right. It, just one more follow-up for me. I noticed um, one of the worldviews is Pelagianism, and it struck me as kind of interesting because that is really a, a subdivision. Um, did you have to limit your, um, I guess, theologically based, uh, more theologically based worldviews when you were writing this? Was that a, a struggle to kind of veer into even more subdivisions of theology? Um, and can you comment a little bit on, on what you mean by Pelagianism as a worldview? Right. Well, of course, when you talk about a Christian worldview, you can talk about different levels of specificity. You can talk about 
orthodox Christianity that's defined, uh, defined by the early ecumenical creeds, or you can talk about something very specific like a reformed Christian worldview, which is you know, what, I, what I hold, but I felt that this, this book wasn't the place to get into that level of specificity, although you know, anyone who's familiar with uh, reformed theology will see it lurking in the background. Um, but I, the way I wanted to break it down was, in a sense, um, uh, in a way that matched some of the early church creeds, uh, settling issues like the divinity of Christ and the, uh, the nature of salvation being by grace alone. And so that's why I put in the salvation question, the way I put it is, do good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? In other words, is it, is it a, a merit-based salvation that, that where you end up depends on how good a life you've lived? Now that's obviously, if, if you take a merit-based approach, that is historically Pelagian. The problem is, as we all know, many people today think that they are Christians when they really have a Pelagian understanding of salvation. And I thought it was important to make that distinction in the book so that people don't end up with a Christian worldview when really they hold a heretical view of the basis on which we're saved. So I, I actually hope that a lot of people get caught out by that question because I think that's a very important um, e evangelistic consideration. On that point, it reminds me of uh, Warfield's book, The Plan of Salvation. Not that he has a choose-your-own-adventure style, but he does traverse a tree of different approaches to soteriology. And in that regard, you're treading a little bit of the same water. Yeah, I did, I did have Warfield's book somewhat in the back of my mind mm -hmm. as I was doing that. But of course, he's going even further and, and getting right down to the specifics of Calvinism versus other, um, right. other views of, of the Christian faith. Now, I'm very interested to hear more about uh, the applied aspect of this book and, and some of the hopes that you have for it down the road. Before we started recording, I mentioned that I have certainly people in mind that I would like to give this book to. Uh, some are Christians or vaguely nominal Christians. They would call themselves a Christian, but also have a whole host of views that one might question whether or not the worldview there is truly consistently Christian. But what are your hopes for this view and how do you, or for this book, and how do you see people using it in everyday life, either within the church or with family and friends or people that you might come across? I hope that it'll be used in a number of ways. It is designed to be very flexible in its usage, so I could see it being used for uh, Christian discipleship, for uh, young Christians getting a better understanding of their worldview, Christian worldview versus the alternatives out there, and to give them some basic apologetics training, the sort of sort of questions that they might ask of other people. I think it could be used for education, Christian education. Uh, high school students, I think, could, could benefit a lot from the book. I really do hope that it will be used for outreach, for apologetics-oriented outreach. I, I hope that people could look at this and say, this is something that I could give to a non-Christian friend or family member, that it's not going to be patronizing to them, it's not going to be intimidating to them. They're going to look at it and think, hey, this is interesting, this is engaging, they'll actually enjoy reading it. And it's not meant to be the last word. It's not something that you, you give to your uh, you give to someone, you give to your friend, and uh, they're, they're just going to become persuaded to be a Christian. Of course, that's not how it works. <laughs> you, you couldn't do that in a 120-page book. But I hope that it will lay the ground, it will open up 
conversations, fruitful conversations about ultimate matters, not about superficial objections um, about the way that Christians live, about you know, various political and social issues that people want to talk about, but really getting down to the roots of people's worldviews and getting them to understand that you've got to deal with these questions before you think about anything else. Mm-hmm. I think in that regard that this book is highly valuable, not just for the content, but the format and the way that it engages the reader in a non-patronizing way. Because I think a lot of people would like to evangelize or apologize, and, and they would like to do something of the sort, kind of work through some of these difficult questions with folks. But uh, they they might not feel comfortable, or they might not have all the follow-up questions in their mind. And so this this could be a really helpful tool just to help people walk through this. Um, and it would be useful not only for the subject or or the um, the non-Christian who might read this book, but also for the Christian apologist to use it as a tool, not as training wheels, but as a help to keep them focused and to drive towards a more biblical understanding of things. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's meant to be a tool. And like, like any tool, you need to know how to use it. You, know, you, you need to be familiar with it yourself. You don't just hand it over or, or press the on button. Um, <laughs> so I hope that anyone who, who looks at this will, will familiarize themselves with the, con- the content and the questions. They'll think through the issues for themselves so that when they give it to someone else, they will be prepared to deal with the sort of questions that are going to come back and the sort of conversations that it's going to stimulate. Dr. Anderson, I've been flipping through your book, and um, when you get to Christianity, you do uh, fairly mention the problem of evil and how that's uh, been a a perennial challenge in terms of Christian responses to it in any number of ways. But I'm trying to remember which worldview it was, but it seemed to me that you included at least a, a short Christian response to the problem of evil, but not in when you're articulating Christianity. Am I remembering correctly? Almost. Uh, you're right that I, I, do, I do talk about the, uh, the problem of evil being something that Christians need to wrestle with. And I, I, I say in the section on Christianity that the greatest challenge for the Christian worldview is undoubtedly the problem of evil. Um, but... I do also add that the Bible suggests a number of reasons why God would allow evil for a greater good purpose. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it does answer some of them. And then I make the point that uh, this isn't a problem that is exclusive to Christianity. No matter what worldview you have, you have a problem of evil because you have to either uh, deny the reality of evil or you have to accept it and then explain it in terms of your your fundamental presuppositions. So I want people to recognize that they shouldn't just judge Christianity and say, oh, they've got a problem of evil. That's a a knockout blow because you have to compare how Christianity deals with the problem of evil over against how other worldviews deal with the problem of evil and then make the judgment whether whether Christianity does the, the best job of it. And some right. of them, other worldviews, have the problem of good. <laughs> How exactly. to explain and, yeah, and define right. and account yeah. for good in the world. Exactly. Or the problem of non-evil, as you mentioned yeah. elsewhere. Dr. Anderson, I was wondering um, if you have heard certain objections even to the basic premise of a worldview. Um, there, there are some out there that um, they might pick up this book and a little bit skeptical even about the term and whether um, it has any applicable benefits in, in everyday life. For example, you know, does it really make a difference whether your car mechanic is a Muslim or a Christian or an atheist or a pantheist or, or whatever? How do you address those matters where 
um, common objections are brought up, uh, you know, dealing with like kind of mundane things in life and, and used to say, listen, the, the worldview thing, whether you're a historian or philosopher, it's, it's not really going to matter all that much. Right. Well, I think yeah, I, I've encountered some pushback, not specifically with respect to the book, but more general reading what folks are writing out there, some pushback to the idea of a Christian worldview and to what extent it really a worldview really makes a difference. Now, I, I agree that what worldview a person has isn't going to make a whole lot of difference to whether they can fix my plumbing, um, but it's going to have a huge uh, impact on on how they view themselves and their place in the world and how they're going to interpret the sort of evidence that we, we might bring to bear when we're doing apologetics and we're doing evangelism. So, you know, by, by common grace, an atheist, uh, a Muslim can be just as good, even better plumber than, than a Christian. But this isn't a book that is dealing with plumbing. It's a book that's dealing with people's uh, ultimate uh, beliefs and uh, where they find their place in the world and uh, how we are going to fruitfully engage with people about ultimate matters. And you really can't do that, I don't think, without talking about, about worldviews. You can't bypass those fundamental presuppositional questions. Yeah, I think that's right. I've, I've said before that I think the, the question itself, the objection itself, actually comes from an empiricist and pragmatic worldview, so that when you're looking at you know, the mundane things in everyday life, your evaluation of those things is driven by just your basic empirical observation of them, whether it makes any physical difference in, say, your car working well or whatever it is. Or, um, you know, if things work out in the end, the pragmatism, then um, your worldview doesn't really what matter. But there's more going on to even those mundane things. And I think your book helpfully paints a broader picture and, um, and a context to those kinds of things so that they're not just like isolated events or even brute events or brute facts. Mm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Where might you suggest people would um, go after reading this book, whether an apologist is is using this book as a tool or whether an unbeliever or uh, somebody of some alternative worldview to Christianity is reading this book? Do you find um, that this there would be some natural tie-in following this book where they might be able to read more, depending on where they come out in terms of uh, the path that they chose? Yes, I think it's almost inevitable that somebody's going to get to the end of the book and they're going to say, I, I want more. Mm-hmm. This wasn't enough. And it, that's actually deliberate. You know, you're, you're giving them a taste of something uh, in the hopes that they will pursue more. And I can't cram everything into a book of this size. Otherwise, it would become a different, a different kind of book altogether. So what we've done, what, what I agreed with the publisher, is that in the, in the appendix, in the Q&A, there's a question, where can I... Where can I read more about the worldviews in this book? And we've set up a, a page on the Crossway website, the URLs in the book, where people can go and they can see some recommended resources either on worldviews in general or specific worldviews, Christianity, materialism, Islam. And uh, some of these are at an introductory level. Some of these are at an advanced level. There's a little symbol um, to show you which. Uh, and also some resources on on world religions, because mm. uh, although I do talk about religions in the book, it's not primarily a book about religions. It's a book about worldviews, and people may want to read more about world religions and try and relate that to the questions that are posed in the book. So there are some 
uh, recommended resources that we decided to put on a web page so that it could be dynamic as well. Yeah. Once you put it in the book, of course, it's fixed. But now, because we're putting it on a website, it means that if we want to edit it or uh, enhance it later on, then we have the liberty to do that. And I'm sure if there aren't plans already or resources already available online, this type of thing could actually be rather dynamic, where you actually answer the questions on the fly, and, and perhaps uh, you and Crossway could could develop some further resources where people could uh, continue to uh, be surveyed and answer questions and be directed toward a path of greater understanding and, and biblical clarity. Yeah. One thing I thought about early on is whether we could actually make this an, an iPhone app. I mean, yeah. It would lend itself quite well to that. We haven't sure. done that yet. Um, but, you know, the possibility is there. And some people have come back to me and said, yeah, this would, be, this would work on a smartphone. It would. It would be really <laughs> neat. One of the great things, I think, Dr. Anderson, about this book is that from one angle, it's, it's a plea for honesty and it's a plea for consistency. Uh, honesty in the sense that you're clarifying the worldviews that are out there and available. But even more importantly, in my mind, is it's a plea for consistency. You actually exhort the reader to live consistently with their worldview. And that applies as much as anything to nominal Christianity, where you're challenging, okay, if you call yourself a Christian, um, and yet you deny the divinity or the resurrection of Christ, uh, you're, you're functionally denying the worldview that you espouse. Uh, was that was that part of your thinking in terms of the consistency question when it comes to people's worldviews, day to day living? Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted people to to get some clarity on what their position is on certain issues, really to nail people down. Well, do you believe in God or not? And if you do believe in God, then, then what, what kind of a God do you believe in? But then having, having got people to answer these questions precisely, to then press them on the consistency, not just the theoretical consistency. Okay, you say, you say that there's objective good and evil, but you deny that there's a God. How, how is that consistent? So there's a the theoretical question, but also the practical question. And in some of the worldview sections, I say, okay, you believe such and such, but can you really live that out consistently in practice? And right at the end, in the, in the appendix, the first question is, okay, I figured out what my worldview is. What now? And I give some suggestions about how they can reflect more, not just on the theory behind their worldview and the, the intellectual questions, but whether they live in a way consistent with it. And of course, that applies just as much to the Christian as it does to anyone else. I think that there's a, a lot of Christians out there and a lot of people out there that may entertain um, these deep metaphysical, ontological, epistemological questions. But then, as you say, functionally, that doesn't make a real difference in how they live day to day. And I think one of the benefits of this book is to challenge people in that way, as you mentioned. Yeah, I, I hope so. But of course, the book on its own is not going to do that. So I could conceive of someone, um, you know, in, in a church context who's discipling people, using this book again as a tool to raise the questions. But then it takes that personal touch, that personal relationship mm -hmm. to really press a person to challenge them about whether they're living consistently with the worldview that they claim to hold. Mm -hmm. Sure. A lot of times that needs to be done relationally. I always love the quote where Van Til said, we always need to be ready to buy the next cup of coffee. That's his way of stressing the fact that we have to put the time in and get to know people. And uh, it, it isn't enough just to slap some, a label on someone and say, you are a type of pantheist or something, <laughs> and, and, right. then, and then leave them. This book is a very, very helpful tool to 
provide clarity, but then also very much appreciate your call, Dr. Anderson, to uh, have that personal touch and that, of course, that relational approach where we uh, speak with people, get to know them, and then encourage them towards a biblical model. There should be many coffee stains on <laughs> copies of this book. <laughs> That's right. I, I also wanted to point people to uh, Dr. Anderson did a five-part blog series on the Crossway blog um, that was uh, five ways to discern someone's worldview. Um, so if you have uh, more questions about what we're doing and you want another teaser, maybe in written form, of what he's going for in the book, um, make sure to check that out. We'll put a link, I'm sure, in the show description on the on the website. Um, maybe is, do you want to give just a brief overview of what you were going from for there in distinction from the book itself? Yeah, I was asked by Crossway to to write some blog posts to accompany the launch of the book. And um, rather than go into details of different worldviews and different worldview questions as I do in the book, I really wanted to talk about what is a worldview and why does it matter in the first place? Why, why is it a fruitful thing to understand your own worldview, to understand other people's worldviews, and to be able to critically engage with it? So they're, they're more um, practical-oriented. Um, blog posts, at least towards the end, where I, I talk about um, what sort of what sort of things make up a worldview. What, what are the kind of uh, beliefs and presuppositions that make up a worldview? And I have this acronym, which I, I won't go into here, but I have this acronym that I use when I'm teaching on worldviews about how you can divide a worldview up into five key areas and ask the sort of questions that will bring out people's presuppositions about God, about human nature, about knowledge, about morality, and about their view of, of salvation. What, what does it mean to be saved? Uh, and the last of this, the last post in the series was about how you can, in practical terms, discern someone's worldview. There's different ways of getting to the bottom of someone's worldview. There, there are direct ways, there are indirect ways, there are ways that involve just uh, observing them and listening to them, and there are ways that involve a proactive questioning of, of them. Um, so that's, that's really uh, what I was trying to accomplish in that series. Mm. Well, we do encourage people to visit the, the website, crossway.org. We'll put a link to that series in the show notes as well as a link to this book. Uh, What's Your Worldview, an Interactive Approach to Life's Big Questions, published by Crossway, written by our guest, Dr. James Anderson. This has been a fantastic discussion and a very insightful one and encouraging one as well. We want to thank you for writing this book and also for joining us today, Dr. Anderson. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been real fun. We uh, also want to point people back to our website where you can find more resources as well as our previous discussion with uh, Dr. Anderson. A lot of great stuff on apologetics, and and we're online at reformedforum.org. There you'll find information not only about these interviews, but about all of our programs and other resources. And we encourage you to visit the archives and find a a bunch of our older conversations because they are no less uh, significant today than they were when we first recorded them. And also get in touch with us. You can tweet us at Reformed Forum or email us at mail at reformedforum.org. We love hearing from you and we love uh, receiving episode suggestions and uh, questions about the various conversations we've had, and we love getting back to you. So contact us today. We do want to thank everybody for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.